Six String Hayride podcast, a journey through the world of classic country music with your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. We will be covering all of the great topics in country music, from mama to prison, to dancing, to drinking, to guitar picking, to all the crazy deal with the devil, honky-talking stuff you do on Saturday night, and how you try to get it past your Lord on Sunday morning. So climb aboard the cart and let's go. And because all this is going to make you hungry, some of the finest musicians and personalities in country music have published cookbooks. We will be sharing recipes from those in every episode. There's lots of episode of the six string hayride we're going to expand our horizons a bit we're going to talk about country music as we always do but we're going to talk about rock artists and the country music that they have performed sometimes this will be a straight up cover of a song other times it will be something that was either influenced or tinged by the country music of their youths we'll discuss bands like the rolling stones the beatles the first national band We'll talk about Keith Richards. We'll talk about the Kinks. But they'll never make me something that I'm not. Cause I'm a Boswell Hillbilly boy. But my heart lies in old West Virginia. We'll talk about Nazareth for the second time on this podcast. So climb on board the cart and let's take a ride to the rock countryside. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything but they off of my blue suede shoes. Folks, uh, welcome aboard. Like Chris said, we're going to get into the world of rock and roll a little bit here but still keep it entirely country. You have probably noticed over the course of this podcast that a lot of the same names keep popping up over and over again. Musicians who tour together, perform together, write songs together, play on each other's records, uh, some who just have a mutual respect for each other's work and hang out and have a good time together when they're not in their professional roles. We have had a lot of that in the world of 60s rock and roll to start with, specifically with the big two, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. These are guys who very much, as soon as they got famous and got a little celebrity in their lives, guys like George Harrison and Keith Richards took advantage of that not by going out and playing up to the celebrity role quite in the way that McCartney or Mick Jagger might have, but they went and used their notoriety to form friendships and working friendships with their idols from their youth. Guys like Carl Perkins...
more. Cliff Gallup. Chet Atkins. It's a really wonderful thing when you see musicians of this caliber try to go back and still learn from and pay respect to the guys that influenced them. Very often, Chris has commented on the idea, if you find a record or an artist that you like, try to go back into that rabbit hole and find out who they listened to when they were learning how to play, who their influences were. And this episode is really going to dig into that in the specific case of some of our favorites from the rock and roll world. The Beatles with George Harrison, the great guitar player. Stones and Keith Richards. Yeah. And then in the early 70s with former Monkey and First National Band leader Michael Nesmith, a very underrated country songwriter who had a wonderful collaboration with a steel player named Red Rhodes. Play Red. also have kind of the bits and pieces of country music that continue to influence and flow through the 70s, the 80s, and up through today. Uh, an old Boodle O'Brien song, Love Hurts, became a huge radio hit in 1976 for Nazareth. Kid. This was a song I heard on the radio a lot, usually AM at the time, and I never knew about its history as an older country song and all the amazing versions of it until I was much older. Uh, we also have a band like R.E.M. and a track like Don't Go Back to Rockville, which has that old stride piano. It has a lonely guy, a bus station, a spurned lover with an alcohol problem. Every night. 
country top to bottom. So let's get started. And we're going to start by going briefly all the way back to the beginning. Herself, the guitar queen, Mother Maybelle Carter. influence on the young Chet Atkins. By the end of the 1940s, he is playing and sharing guitar duties with Mother Maybell in the Carter Family Act, mostly for radio, some live performances. And into the 1950s, Chet grows as a recording artist, picks up the nickname Mr. Guitar. <laughs> fifties, he is with the Bradley Boys, the premier producer, you know, one of the top two, three guys in Nashville. Uh that early start with Maybell Carter really put Chet on his way. And by the end of the fifties, he'd accomplished a lot. When you talk to people like George Harrison, Scotty Moore, who played on the original Sun Record singles for Elvis Presley, when you would talk to a guy like Cliff Gallup, who was the guitar player for the great Gene Vincent, collaborated with Vincent on all those classic records uh, with Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, you hear that name coming up again and again and again, Chet Atkins, Chet Atkins, Chet Atkins. You know, the man with the giant Gretsch and that amazingly smooth sound. It's Carl Perkins in the rockabilly era. Carl's born in 1932, and as a young kid, a farmer that's down the road from where Carl and his parents have their farm, he gives young Carl his beat-up used Gene Autry guitar, and Carl takes to it right away. There's a problem, though, in that the strings break. And Carl and his family cannot afford new strings. So Perkins ties the strings together. This creates sort of a barbed wire type effect across the strings physically. So to get away from hitting those parts of the strings, Carl taught himself that wonderful kind of staccato bend that he gets because he can only access certain parts of the string if he hit it where he had tied it together to repair it, his fingers would bleed. Oh, it's something like that, steeped in poverty, that creates incredible innovation and a guitar style that's really kind of starts with Chet Atkins and gets that sort of staccato, jagged thing that you later, a couple of years later here in Chuck Berry, 
And Carl's kind of in the middle of that all on his own. It's an amazing style. This is something that catches the attention of a young George Harrison, who's growing up in Liverpool in the 1950s. And pretty much any interview you can look up on YouTube or hear in any old Beatles documentary or any guitar magazine. And Harrison is very quick to say, you know, when I first heard Carl Perkins, Blue Suede Shoes, when I first heard Scotty Moore, you know, and that's all right, mama. I just, I knew what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted. Guitar, guitar, guitar. A young Keith Richards growing up in London, very much the same story. You know, uh, in a lot of interviews, Keith was keen to say when Elvis first came to England and performed, you know, me and all my friends went to see him. We were all just completely knocked out. All my friends went home the next day and said, oh, I really want to be Elvis. And Keith thought, huh, that's funny. I really want to be Scotty. We get that a third time from a guy we've been talking a lot about recently, Jeff Beck. When he is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the table in the front row next to where Beck and his wife were sitting was set for Scotty Moore and his guests. Jeff Beck looks down at him, and one of the first things he says as he's accepting the induction in the Hall of Fame is, you know, Scotty, I still think you're the best. And when Jimmy Page and I were kids together, we used to sit down on the floor and slow down the record and slow down the record, and we're still trying to learn how to play your stuff exactly right. Um, to stand here in front of Scotty is just more than I ever could believe, you know, and, and DJ and all that. But you guys, I mean, Jimmy, you, you'll back, back me up on this. You know, we used to sit and just, you know, dribble over your playing, you know, fantastic. Thank you for that. And Thank you boy, all. the smile on Scotty Moore's face. Fantastic. It's just one of those things where great music builds on great music and it keeps going. So to get back to Carl Perkins, probably one of the most underappreciated figures in this era of music. Uh, Carl in 1955, after doing a lot of beer hall gigs and some local radio gigs in Tennessee and around Jackson, Mississippi, he writes a song called Movie Mag. And this sort of creates the template for a lot of great music from this era in terms of the songwriting. You have a young man who talks about working all week so he can just get to Saturday, so he can just see the girlfriend. I only see her once a week and that's when my work is through. I break new ground the whole week long with my mindset straight on you. And I polished up my old horse back and she looks good, I know. Take her out to a Western picture show. The problem is the woman, Maggie, has a dad with a shotgun behind the front door. And as Carl says, it waits for me, I know. Now won't you let me take you to the show so I can hold your hand. Oh, it ain't that I don't like your house, it's just that doggone man. And I double barrel behind the door, it waits for me, I know. So climb up on old Becky's back and let's ride to the picture show. This becomes a common 
kind of template for songwriting through the rockabilly and the early rock and roll era. Um, you get it popping up in 1983 in a big hit single for Ray Davies and the Kinks, Come Dancing, where it's that same bit. Boy works all week, takes the girl out, goes dancing, gets a kiss on the cheek. The boy's in heaven. He's going to repeat the same thing the next week. Another Saturday, another date. She would be ready, but she'd always make him wait. In the hallway, in anticipation. He didn't know the night would end up in frustration. He'd end up blowing all his wages for the week. Or for a cuddle and a peck on the cheek. Come down. Late 1955 and released as a single on New Year's Day of 1956. Carl Perkins writes, records, and gives the world the incredible blue suede shoes. And do anything that you want to do, but uh, uh, honey, lay up on my shoes, don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything but lay up on my blue suede shoes. one of those situations like blue moon of kentucky like coal miner's daughter where if you just wrote that one song you know the world would owe you a hug for the rest of your life so carl writes blue suede shoes again new year's day 1956 the single comes out while on his way to a live performance in march of 1956 with the single climbing up the charts carl is in an awful car crash breaks his shoulder collarbone and vertebrae in his upper back and neck he is laid up for a while and i'm sure this isn't personal on elvis's part this is more than likely colonel tom parker at work but elvis then puts out his cover of blue suede shoes goes on national tv on the milton burl show and performs blue suede shoes and pretty much takes over the song from that point on he does send Carl a letter in the hospital saying, I hope you feel better. But yeah, that very much derailed Carl's climb as a big superstar type. He spends most of his career as more of a smaller audience, almost a cult figure kind of guy amongst rock and rollers and guitar players. He really resurfaces again in the later 60s, collaborating with Johnny Cash on the Live at San Quentin album. And if writing Blue Suede Shoes was not enough, he then turns around and answers the original Carter family by writing the brilliant Daddy Sing bass. But there's a silver lining behind every cloud. Just four people, that's all we were, trying to make a living out of Blacklander. We'd get together in a family circle singing loud. Daddy sang bass. Mama sang tenor. Me and a brother would join right in there. Singing seems to help a troubled soul. That song is one of the bedrocks of Johnny Cash's revival period in 1968 and 69. I cannot tell you enough how underrated Carl Perkins is. He rubs off on the Beatles to the extent that George Harrison delivers one of his best guitar solos on a cover of Carl Perkins' Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now
various times, the Beatles then go on to cover Matchbox, another great Carl Perkins song, and Honey Don't, another Perkins original, and it gave Ringo a real chance to show off his charm as a singer behind the drum kit. Well, how come you say you will when you won't? Say you do, baby, when you don't. Let me know, honey, how you feel. Tell the truth now, is love real? But uh uh-uh. Well, honey, don't. Well, honey, don't. So let's listen to a little bit of Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby and just dig it. It's fantastic. When I last night, I didn't say late. For a home had a 19 day Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now One of the other big things you can't escape with George Harrison's guitar playing is, well, the obvious physical thing. It's that giant brown Chet Atkins country gentleman it is hard to not notice a guitar that's almost as big as the guy playing it. Starting with the duo jet model in 1962, Harrison had a real fondness for Gretsch guitars. It is a classic country and rockabilly sound. He started going with the Chet Atkins design models in 1963. And on Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, you really hear that unique Gretsch sound Style-wise, you can listen to Chet Atkins here in this example. Listen to George's guitar solo from All My Loving. You really have a hard time saying, no, I don't hear any Chet Atkins in that. It's a fantastic display of the influence that Chet has on Harrison. And it's one of the best early George Harrison guitar bits. One thing that I find fascinating is that when I was younger and I would read books about the Stones and the Beatles, influences that were mentioned over and over and over again in perhaps a more deep and meaningful way would be the blues-based influences. So with the Stones, you'd always have the author of whatever book you were reading going into pretty good detail about Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Willie Dixon, uh, etc., And when you listen to those really early Stones records, that does make some sense. I mean, there's a lot of covers on there uh, from those types of artists. There's just a lot of blues-based feeling. Brian Jones is an excellent example of that. He very deeply loved the blues, and it comes through in his playing. 
And in any interview you might ever read with the guy, it's very clear that there's a deep and appreciative love for blues music, uh, specifically American blues music from the South. But then as you start to really listen to the records and move through the 60s, you'll start to hear there's a lot of country influences in there as well. You'll hear that with songs like Dear Doctor from the Stones. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. It's sleeping, it's abating. Can't you please tear it out and preserve it right there in that jar? Also from that same record from Beggar's Banquet, you have Factory Girl. And then moving on to their very next album, you have Country Honk. the countrified version of Honky Tonk Women, which they had released as a single uh, prior. So what you read and what you hear don't necessarily jive. Well, you do a little more digging and you'll learn that Mick Jagger talks about how he and Keith absolutely loved the Everly Brothers, that Mick idolized George Jones as a singer you know, he, I read an interview where Mick pointed out that they really loved what he was calling shit kicker country. And I think he meant that from the standpoint of just genuine, sincere country music. Yeah, I don't think he meant it as an insult. Uh, me personally, having been born in the South, I don't take it as an insult. But I understand where he's coming from. So it's fascinating how you have the, these varying worlds. You have the Stones, which we just talked about with their country influences. You have the Beatles, which you just talked about at length, specifically with George and his country influences, but also John. He mentioned in an interview later in his life how he really thought that Elvis's work in the Sun Records period was absolutely brilliant that he thought that was a really good period of music and he really loved those early elvis records that he didn't care as much for elvis later on but at the beginning when it was that's all right mama and blue moon of kentucky and the things that you mentioned earlier you know there was a real fanboy in lennon that was trying to come out it's also interesting you mentioned michael nesmith and the first national band now, I thought of Nesmith for the longest time as that guy from the Monkees. And, and let's be honest, that's who Nesmith was. He was that guy from the Monkees. There's a smile on the wind 
my face and starts to erase all the bloom. And the sun with a kiss begins to dismiss the memory of my life without you. But when you actually start listening to those albums, specifically the the first few he did, the first national band and the second national band albums, those are some really good records. He pretty much started the country rock movement. As a matter of fact, I read in Rolling Stone where they referred to those country rock albums as the best music you've never heard of. And I actually recall a conversation that you and I had at one point, Jim, and this must be nearly 20 years ago when you made mention to me of having just listened to those albums and I wasn't really familiar. And I, and I, you know, what do you mean Mike Nesmith and his country rock albums? Isn't he just that guy from the monkeys? Isn't he kind of a one dimensional guy? And you know, your, your point of view was, Oh no, very much not. And so I went and I listened to that first album and I listened to a song like Joanne and then the woman that she was drove her on with desperation and I saw as she went a most hopeless situation for Joanne and the man and the time that made them both run. It's this amazing piece of music. Uh, it was, I don't know if it was his highest charting post monkey single, but I know it went to 21 on the billboard. I'm pretty sure that was the highest charting one he had. Um, but it turns out that a guy like Nesmith, he didn't just go on to make country rock after his monkeys days because he was looking for something to do. He has some pretty serious, uh, bona fides. So yeah, like you mentioned, these influences all bleed into one another. It's all over the place. If you listen to one, you'll be able to follow it and find the next one and the next one and so on and so forth. All of this music ties back in to itself and to other genres. Good music is good music. Just because somebody puts themselves in a particular genre of music does not mean that that's the only thing they have. Uh, for example, I, I would say everybody who listens to the podcast at this point probably understands that I am a pretty serious Willie Nelson fan. And you can go out there and find Willie singing Sinatra or Gershwin. There is somebody I'm longing to see. I hope that she turns out to be. Someone who over me. There's all kinds of stuff out there that crosses genres. So we wanted to bring an episode like this to the listeners to show that even if you say things like, oh, I don't really like country music, you might find out that you like a lot more than you thought you did because it's all over the place in the stuff that you do like.
Yeah, Chris, that's, you know, fantastic and all excellent points. The thing with Willie Nelson and Keith Richards is, you know, they're a pair that wind up becoming friends. I'm sure they have at least one or two shared interests that I can think of. And they wind up doing a television appearance together with a great take on a song that Waylon Jennings made famous, We Had It All. Yeah, Willie and I are going to pick this up. I mean, give a hand to the man. I mean, Willie, I mean... This is a song I heard out of Dobie Gray, Troy Seals, Don Fritz, I believe, wrote this, right? Yeah, it's called, uh, We Had It All. And I get all those feelings that I'll be there back again. And I'll stay with you, girl, just as long as I can. Cause it was so good. It was so good, you know. Yes, it was so good when I was your man fantastic version and it's you can tell watching the clip on youtube that keith has basically got this look on his face the whole time of oh my god it's willie nelson oh my god it's willie nelson and it's a beautiful performance of a great song and i would highly recommend that you check that out so we mentioned scotty moore a huge influence on jeff beck Keith Richards went to see Elvis and walked away being far more impressed with the guitar player in Scotty than he was with Elvis. So to tell you a little bit about the great Scotty Moore, he's born in 1931. His name is Winfield Scott Moore III. He does a stint in the Navy during the Korean War, uh, much like Gene Vincent does, also serves in the Navy during the Korean War. And Scotty comes back out of the service and he winds up playing guitar around Memphis a bit and he catches the attention of Sam Phillips at Sun Studio. He gets a gig as kind of a session guitarist, a utility musician, somebody to help play on the sessions. And he gets teamed up with Elvis in 1954 and they record That's All Right Mama. They'd been banging their heads against the wall in the studio all day trying to do country, trying to do gospel, trying to do, you know, straight versions in those genres and not mix things up between the genres. And if you get a little country and you get a little gospel and you put a little, well, if you put some eyebrows on it, you're going to get that early Elvis record of That's All Right Mama with the great guitar by Scotty Moore. That's all right, mama. you get mystery train and then after that you get basically scotty moore inventing what in rock guitar playing is known as power chords when you listen to that opening of jailhouse rock
way The band was jumping and the joint began to swing You should have heard this knocked out jailbird sing that That just really nails it. And then when you get back to Keith Richards' guitar playing and so many of those great Stone songs being based on those really heavy downstroke bar chords on the guitar, just go back and think of that opening from Jailhouse Rock. And that's really where that thing kind of starts to germinate and become a a real part of the rock and roll guitar arsenal. And early on, you're hearing these types of country and rockabilly influences and Keith Richards as a guitar player. George Harrison very much sticks to his guitar playing is where his love of that type of country music comes out. For Keith Richards, by the time you get to what Chris is talking about with the Beggar's Banquet album and then Let It Bleed, and really through the Sticky Fingers into Exile, if you think of a song like Sweet Virginia... Richards, it becomes more of an influence of the songwriting and the singing. His big heroes are George Jones and Merle Haggard. later in their careers Keith had a chance to get to be friends with George Jones and to record some duets with him Uh, they did a version of burn your playhouse down and they did a wonderful version of the very sad ballad say it's not you as part of the Bradley Barn tribute sessions record well at first what they say didn't hurt my Until I mention her Then slowly the tears overtook me Keith tells a story that Every once in a while, George Jones would drunk dial him. That's just even beyond imagination. You're Keith Richards, and you have a story about George Jones drunk dialing you. Uh, Hey, that's like, you know, you you die for a day and go to heaven. George was in fantastic fettle, and uh, he loved the fact that we were doing one of his old, old, old 50s hits and and a a great evil song and uh, and we had a ball burning that playhouse down in fact George sent me this sheet music if you can imagine you know with the sign and everything yeah and uh, and after that whenever I did speak to George the first thing he'd say to me on the phone is burn your playhouse down (laughs) yeah great fun I mean and such a I mean I worked with George a couple of times but uh, 
real honor to me, you know. And I also know that my old friend Graham Parsons eating his heart. What a cool thing to go from being able to make a record together to having really stupid drinking stories together. Um, the friendship and the brotherhood and just the way that this music has gone, you know, going back to Maybell as a guitar player, Hank as a singer and, and writer of these sad songs. And then you get to Chet Atkins and you get to George Jones and you get to Carl Perkins. And all of a sudden you're talking about how George Harrison and Keith Richards love hanging out with these guys, how there's more than a couple TV specials with Perkins and Harrison playing together at times with guys like Eric Clapton, with Ringo, with Dave Edmonds. There's a lot of wonderful clips of Keith and Willie Nelson or George Jones and Keith. And again, that idea that you go back and you become buddies and you pay your respects to the guys that turned you on in music and you take advantage of your celebrity in that way. That's really the whole point. And our old buddy Jeff Beck does that with the guitar playing of Cliff Gallup, famous for all those Gene Vincent rockabilly records. Cliff was a real disciple of Chet and Les Paul. In rockabilly, that real fiery speed picking that you get, all those quick little licks that you get high up the neck, a lot of that is the old Les Paul influence. <laughs> famous for the Gretsch duo jet is his main guitar. He's all over those early Gene Vincent records. He really rubs off on Jeff Beck's style to the point where in 1993, Jeff Beck records a tribute album to Gene Vincent and Cliff Gallup called Crazy Legs, plays a Gretsch duo jet throughout the record. Uh, Cliff Gallup, his guitar style was very much a fat thumb finger picking and his pinky anchoring the whammy bar the bigsby tremolo bar on the old gretches and if you picture that in your head and you think back to some of our conversation about jeff beck or you just go and google and look at a picture you're using your thumb as the big fat anchor on those low strings you're finger picking those high notes and the whammy bar is anchored by the pinky. And that is step-by-step step, the basic right-hand approach of Jeff Beck that comes directly from Cliff Gallup. Uh, you know, as Chris and I have both said, you just cannot escape how all this kind of goes round and round in a big circle. It's fantastic. Yeah, so one thing I'd like to talk about is a more, I guess we'll say current influence of Keith's or contemporary influence is probably the better way to put it. And that would be Keith and his friendship with Graham Parsons. We were just leaning in the same direction. And uh, and Graham being, as he was, a, a natural soul brother, you know. You know, God. Ja wonderful. And, um, and so then he cut wild horses as well. It, it, it was almost as if it was a magnetic sort of attraction to each other. I miss him still, sadly, you know, dearly. And um, and quite amazingly, I find uh, 
I mean, Graham Parsons, who never actually had a hit record of his own ever, has got one of the most solid and faithful followings of any artist that I can think of, you know, especially given the fact that he never got to where he was going to obviously going to go if it only just kept his mouth shut. For listeners who don't know who Graham Parsons is, do yourself a favor. Go on to whatever service you use. Go to your local record store. Find his albums. Find the stuff he did with the Flying Burrito Brothers. Find the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album that he did with the Birds. I started out younger At most with the International Submarine Band, find his later albums, including Grievous Angel, which was released posthumously, and listen to all of them, because they're all fantastic. But let's talk a little bit about Keith and Graham as friends. So the two of them actually met in London in 1968 when the Birds were playing a show locally there. And Keith wound up backstage. He and Graham start talking. It turns out they're both massive fans of country music. Uh, there's a very famous story where Pamela DeBar had walked in on Graham Parsons sitting on a floor crying, listening to George Jones records. I think I might've mentioned that in a prior episode, uh, but if not, it, it will certainly fit in anytime you're thinking about Graham Parsons. So after this first meeting, they wind up meeting up again in London a little bit later or, or somewhere in England, I believe. And Graham is on his way to play a show or a series of shows with the birds in South Africa. And Keith essentially asks him, what are you doing? You know, we don't play there. We don't support apartheid. And the story as I've read it in some instances is that Graham essentially quits on the spot or puts up a fuss. Uh, I've read this a lot of different ways. I don't know which version is the definitive truth. But in any case, after a conversation with Keith Richards, Graham Parsons winds up leaving the, the birds, definitely due to not wanting to play in South Africa under apartheid. Uh, I first read about Graham Parsons and Keith Richards' friendship in a book called The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, which was published by Stanley Booth, uh, an amazing music writer. He's got some really good books, and this is one of them. Uh, I read this when I was maybe 17 or 18, and it was quite formative in my understanding of the Rolling Stones and how they fit into the music scene uh, of their time and of our time. Uh, So I would highly recommend that one. But Graham and Keith remain friends throughout. This culminates with Graham spending uh, at least a large part of, if not the entire sessions for Exile on Main Street with the Stones while they're in France. Now, Jim mentioned earlier songs like Sweet Virginia, which absolutely you can hear the country influence all over that song, but also take a song like Torn and Frayed. Hey, 
straightforward rock song, but if you read the lyrics or if you really listen to what Nicky Hopkins is doing on the piano there, there's a very serious country influence here. This is a country song just disguised as a rock song. I've always heard it like that. I don't think I'm ever not going to hear it like that. No. Graham unfortunately died early in 1973. And even though he's been dead for nearly 50 years, there are a few people who carry his legacy to this day. Uh, Amy Lou Harris, who we've spoken about many times on the Hayride, she actually was part of Graham's band uh, for a while. And to this day, she talks about him in interviews. She keeps his music alive. She keeps his memory alive. You have Keith also continuing to keep that legacy alive. Now, this comes together in a tribute album to Graham from 2004 called Return to Sin City, where Keith does the most amazing cover of Hickory Wind. It's almost like when I listen to this version, it sounds to me like he's almost channeling Graham Parsons. Of course, their voices sound nothing alike. But Keith really stretches out on his vocal delivery on this song, and it comes across as though Graham is singing through him. It's just this amazing version of a song, which is written almost as a longing for the simpler times in life, for the simplicity of your childhood, for the things that made you happy. In South Carolina There are many tall pines I remember the oak tree That we used to climb But now that I who was actually Graham's bandmate with uh, the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers, said that if the only song Graham ever wrote was Hickory Wind, it still would have been enough to put him on the map. And since I just mentioned the wonderful Miss Amy Lou Harris, let's talk about another song that makes the country rock crossover list, and that's Love Hurts by Nazareth. 
Now, I would never have guessed in a million years when we started a country music uh, podcast that we'd be mentioning Nazareth for the second time on this. One time, sure, because of the song we're about to talk about, but we did find that amazing version of them playing Long Black Veil, which we premiered in the Murder Ballad episode. Now, this is a song that I did not know was not a rock song when I was younger. I wasn't aware that there were country versions of this one. To me, it was just a power ballad sung by a rock band. I, I didn't know that this was not original to them. I didn't find that out for years afterwards, but I always thought this was a really good song. Now, imagine my surprise when one day I'm listening to Graham Parsons and, well, there's he and Emmy Lou doing Love Hurts. And then imagine my further surprise when I'm listening to an Everly's Greatest Hits collection one day and, well, there it is again. And then imagine my surprise yet again when I'm listening to old Roy Orbison songs and, well, he's got a version too. So this is one of those songs that has become kind of a staple, although far and away, the largest hit was Nazareth's. Now, there is one major difference between the Nazareth version and the other versions, and that is there's a line in the song that says, love is like a stove that burns you when it's hot, which in the Nazareth version is changed to love is like a flame, which burns you when it's hot. They took this to number eight on the Billboard charts here in the U.S. And this is also the top country single of all time in Norway. Nazareth's version charted for 61 weeks, including 14 weeks at number one. Now, I know Norway, small country, you don't really think of them as, you know, a massive fan base for country music. But Jim and I can both tell you, we've seen quite a few downloads coming from Oslo. Downloads from Oslo. You know what? Oslo, we love you. So the song was actually written by Boudlow Bryant. Uh, now, Boudlow and Felice Bryant were a powerhouse songwriting couple. But this is one of the handful of songs which is credited just to Boudlow. He actually wrote it for the Everleys, and they did release uh, the first version they didn't release it as a single because there was some sort of contractual dispute that they were going through with the record company. Uh, however, 
they did manage to get it out as an album track and then they released it a few years later on a compilation album Perkins track, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, that the Beatles do such an excellent version of, there's actually an interesting thing about the way that the music industry worked at the time versus the way it works now. And that is that this song is, we'll say, quote, based on a 1936 song of the same name by a man named Rex Griffin, uh, though it's typically credited to Perkins. I've listened to Griffin's version, and it's essentially the same song. Some of the lyrics are rearranged. It definitely has a more modern musical arrangement under Perkins. He clearly wrote the music. These days, we would actually see Rex Griffin credited as a songwriter on the Carl Perkins version. The lyrics are that close. If I had all the moonshine I could drink, you couldn't put it in a water tank. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Uh, the Griffin version is interesting, though, because it's basically a Zydeco song. It's heavily fiddle, heavily accordion. It's nothing musically like what Carl Perkins and then after him, the Beatles give us. There's also an amazing version of this song from some sort of Carl Perkins tribute where George Harrison and Perkins are on stage playing this together. I don't know the specifics on that. I suspect Jim will, and I suspect he'll be talking about that here in a minute. Uh, I just know that it's a clip I've seen on YouTube a bunch of times, and it's incredible. It's just incredible. My dear friend, George Harrison. George! Well, let's take some honey from the tree. Dress it up in the cold. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. Woke up last night, past four. Fifteen women knocking on. Occasions where you get to see George Harrison and Carl Perkins really play together, just have a good loose time playing guitar together is a special that was made for pbs you can you used to be able to order it as a dvd as well it's from the mid-1980s it's carl perkins with george harrison as kind of the host there's a wonderful uh, clip of them doing everybody's trying to be my baby together the clip i really love from this and we've got some audio from it is Carl Perkins is demonstrating his guitar technique with George Harrison sitting next to him. And that sounds pretty cool as it is, but Perkins is playing an old standard waiting for the sunrise. Merle Travis has done it. Les Paul has done it. It's a great guitar picking song. 
And George is just sitting there like a kid in a candy store. You know, and this is Harrison in the mid-80s. He's Beatles are long gone. He's, you know, this incredible phenomena. And here he is watching his hero. And it's just a joy to see. I just thought I'd put Carl on the spot here. Because uh, Dave Edmonds and I, you know, when we were hanging out playing Carl's tunes, Dave's telling me about this thing that Carl plays with his guitar. I thought we should actually share it with the audience to know what's going on. Maybe Carl like to tell us all about this thing here. Oh, George, what you rockabillies come up with, man. Good <laughs> gracious life. Well, really, I think what you're talking about is a little, well, actually, there's a bunch of mistakes when it started, and it still is, but back in the early 50s, there was a, a cat came out by the name of Les Paul, and yeah. he had all the electronic things that gave him the echo, you know, for his so guitar. And we used to sit around down. Yeah, that's the way they. That's how he <laughs> yeah, did it. No, we never did. We used to have to sing the tape echo, you know, in those days. <laughs> but I used to sit around and I, I tried to say, well, how in the world did he do that? So you asked for it. I'll try it. I'll play it kind of simple, and then I'll try to put the echo to it, like like he oh, had. I've got it. All right. The for the echo. All right. <laughs> is that much of a fun heartfelt thing and uh, to get back to this idea we've talked about at times over the series of people carrying the torch or presenting somebody to a new audience we've certainly had that with johnny cash and june furthering the original carter family legacy we have had that with Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings carrying on for Bob Wills. We have had that with George Harrison and Carl Perkins. We've had that with Emmy Lou Harris carrying the torch for Graham Parsons and then a young up and coming Allison Krauss furthering what Emmy Lou started. We get that same thing. Um, in more straight rock with both Keith Richards and Bob Weir letting the world know about the great piano player, Johnny Johnson, who was Chuck Berry's original collaborator. If this was a piano show, we would be talking about Johnny Johnson as much as we talk about Johnny Cash here. And yeah, you have guys like Keith and, and Bobby Weir, you know, letting the world know about Johnson. Jeff Beck had pretty much that personal mission with Cliff Gallup from the old Gene Vincent records. The really, aside from Bebopalula, that really brilliant Cliff Gallup guitar piece is Race with the Devil. <laughs>
she's a guy who kind of faded into obscurity after Gene Vincent's prime, you know, if it wasn't for somebody like Jeff Beck continuing to mention him. But at the time of his death, Cliff Gallup had spent over 30 years as the director of maintenance for the Chesapeake, Virginia school system. He was in a bar band. He went out and played rockabilly shows here and there on weekends. He played a gig about two days before he died of a heart attack. But yeah, this is a guy who is revered by Jeff Beck, and he spends 30 years as the maintenance director for a school system in Chesapeake, Virginia. Where the fate of celebrity falls for some people is hard to explain and certainly has nothing to do with their actual abilities. Chris, while we're talking about the Stones and that wonderful Beggar's Banquet album from 1968, I know there's more about that that even I wasn't aware of until you were looking into this for uh, the recording this evening. I'd really love to know what you got. Yeah, before we get into that, though, I want to kind of follow up on your point about uh, Gallup. Because there's a related point that also concerns Keith, and that is the fact that much like Jeff Beck kept the torch going for Cliff Gallup, you have Keith Richards who kept the torch going for Johnny Johnson. So many people had forgotten who Johnny Johnson was if they ever knew who he was in the first place. And for those who may not be aware, Johnny was the piano player for Chuck Berry. Uh, He wrote a lot of the music for the songs that you that we all know and love oh, mommy, mommy, please may I go. It's such a sight to see somebody steal the show he was no longer recording with Chuck Berry. He wound up driving a bus in St. Louis for a number of years. And Keith Richards was doing a special and he wanted somebody to go find Johnny Johnson. And luckily they did find him. Luckily he was brought into this special with Keith. And fortunately for everyone, including, including the entire music world, he actually wound up performing for the rest of his life. So this is good that the Jeff Becks and the Keith Richards of the world are taking their heroes who didn't have the same financial success that they did and trying to keep their name alive. But yeah, let's circle into some other interesting things with Dear Doctor from the Beggar's Banquet album. First of all, I was fascinated when I learned that Dave Mason plays acoustic guitar on that track. Oh, help me, mama. I'm sick, man. It's to die. 
for anyone who's not familiar with Dave Mason, he did have one relatively well-received hit single, We Just Disagree. And he was also an early member of Traffic. So you'll hear his playing, for example, on the song Low Spark of High Heeled Boys. And the thing that you're hearing is only the sound of the low spark of high heeled boys. Now, if you listen to this record, and you do it either sitting in front of a really good stereo system or preferably with headphones on, much the same as we talked about Sing Me Back Home, you're going to get a lot of those same things here. In the right channel are some incredible acoustic guitar pieces going while in the left channel you have harmonica. And the way those two things mix together is fantastic. Now, normally when you think of the Stones and harmonica, we think of Mick Jagger. Uh, we've all seen it live where Mick's running around on stage playing harmonica. Uh, of course, you'll read things like Mick played the harmonica on a lot of the Stones hits. But in this particular instance, it's actually Brian Jones. it's it gave me a whole new level of appreciation for brian jones that i didn't think i could have i mean the man was a genius a, a troubled genius for sure but a genius nonetheless so in 1997 levon helm from the band another example of folk and country music in, in a tremendous rock and roll outfit and jeff beck and keith richards helped to organize a tribute album for Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana and Bill Black, who were the original Elvis band on the early Sun Records. This is a tribute album called All the King's Men. For me, the highlight of this record is a wonderful rockabilly type song about a guy in a car that he wishes was a nicer car. And it's Levon Helm and Keith Richards sharing the vocals. Got a date, got a dress, who care? Wash the gray right out of my hair. Clean the car, and when I'm through, wax it up till it look brand new. A curved fingers and a fender skirts. Scrub the chrome till your elbow hurts. Pinstripes and cherry pats. A crash stains on your second hand. Keith Richards and Scotty Moore sharing the guitar duties. With Michael Nesmith, of course, there's the early monkey stuff. You have Papa Jean's Blues. 
Nesmith's song on the record and it really hints what's to come with that band because he was the musical integrity of the monkeys all the way around the other three especially mickey dolans would comment on that in later years in 1972 nesmith's solo work really hits a high peak with the songwriting and the country tradition on a record called and the hits just keep on coming and this was kind of a sarcastic message from Nesmith to his record label, who was pressuring him to make a monkeys type record. And the hits just keep on coming and to fit with Chris's criteria for these things. Great, tight, solid storytelling, great vocals, great songwriting, great guitar playing, 33 minutes, folks. This is mostly a duet with Michael Nesmith on that big 12-string that he was famous for. He writes all the songs on this. And the wonderful Red Roads on Pedal Steel. The two highlights on this record are a song called Harmony Constant. While lightly perusing my state of affairs with nothing apparently wrong A silence and a quiet restoration occurs Of emotions forgotten and gone And a song that people associate as one of Linda Ronstadt's signature songs A song written by Mike Nesmith in the very early monkey days Different Drum Yes, you cried morning and say it'll work out But honey child, I've got my doubts You can't see the forest for the trees Now don't get me wrong, it's not that I knock it It's just that I am not in the market For a girl who wants to love only me yeah, folks, that staple of Ronstadt's career, big hit on radio, written by Mike Nesmith when he was sitting around in that silly green hat, waiting for whatever the next TV cue was going to be. The man was a brilliant songwriter and really, really underrated in his career. And as Chris pointed out, the music with the first national band and later the second national band that is just some wonderful, wonderful country music. Has anybody seen my power? It is far from where I live this town. I have only been away an hour. And I saw it when I left your town. So if you see it, don't you call me promptly? It is more than just a question of time. So that concludes this segment of our journey through the world of rock music and country and how they intersect. As we've been trying to say repeatedly on this show, 
when you find something that you like, go figure out what they liked and then figure out what those influences liked and who influenced them. And you'll make it pretty far back in time. It's a journey worth taking. You know, real quick before we go, you mentioned that REM has an incredible version of Wichita Lineman. A couple of years ago, I went to a concert that I'd been wanting to see for just about 30 years. Originally, when I was supposed to see this band in 1991, they canceled. Then when I bought tickets for 2020, well, they were canceled because of the pandemic. When the show finally ha happened and I was able to see them, I was very impressed. They played most of their hits. Of course, I'm talking about Guns N' Roses. And in the middle of their show, all of a sudden, Axel throws on a cowboy hat, walks right out to the middle of the stage, and starts singing Wichita Lineman. I hear you singing in the wires And I can hear you through the wine But the Wichita Lineman is still on the line. Well, listeners, you know that through the first several episodes, we have been sharing recipes from the June Carter and Johnny Cash family cookbook. We're going to start to get out to a little bit more of the great musicians and personalities in the country music world. So we might as well start with George Jones. Please do not drink while you are near the stove. I cannot stress that enough. This is a nice, simple, classic chicken and veggie recipe. Chris is going to lay it on us. All right, folks. Today's recipe comes to us from the Country Music Cookbook. Uh, the subtitle here is Personal Favorite Recipes of Country Music's Greatest Stars. These are compiled by Dick and Sandy St. John. Uh, we wanted to mix it up and not always give you Cash Carter recipes. We wanted to make sure that we branched out a little bit. So this recipe is called, You'll Never Stop Loving Chicken Breasts and Veggies. For this one, you're going to need chicken breasts, chopped carrots, chopped celery, chopped onions, canned or frozen whole kernel corn, canned or frozen English peas, chopped potatoes, garlic powder to taste, and chicken bouillon. Now, you'll notice no specific amounts are given on these ingredients. That's because you can essentially make enough for two, enough for six, whatever you'd like to do. For the actual cooking, combine the chicken breast, carrots, celery, onions, corn, peas, potatoes, garlic powder. To cook this dish, you'll take all of the ingredients listed previously 
and you will combine them in a large Dutch oven. Mix well, add enough water to cover, bake at 300 degrees for two hours, stirring occasionally, and serve with hot cornbread. You may remember we gave you a cornbread recipe in a previous episode. Maybe we'll give you a different one in a future episode, but go make that dish and do us a favor. Email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com and let us know how it turned out. Of course, you can also visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sixstringhayride. Uh, if you actually search, you'll find an amazing clip of Nazareth playing Love Hurts uh, that I posted earlier. You'll also find all kinds of other interesting clips and tidbits about upcoming projects, past projects. Lastly, please support us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash six string hayride you'll see our patreon page we're going to have some neat bonuses out in the near future for patreon supporters we can't do this without you thank you for everything we can't believe that you're taking your time and listening to us but we're very appreciative that you're choosing to do so well folks we have talked about mother maybell influencing the great chad atkins We've talked about Chet Atkins influencing the great George Harrison. We have the neighbors giving a young Carl Perkins a beat-up Gene Autry model guitar that Autry used to promote during his movie and radio career. We have Scotty Moore influencing Keith Richards and Jeff Beck. We have the great Cliff Gallup being remembered and studied and celebrated into the rock and roll era by Jeff Beck. We have Emmy Lou Harris making sure that Graham Parsons doesn't disappear. We still have Keith Richards out there sharing his Graham Parsons stories and his feelings about country music. You just can't escape any of these things. They all merge together and this becomes a huge popular radio phenomena in the mid 70s when nazareth covers love hurts and this is by the guy that was writing songs for the everly brothers 20 years before and then in the 80s you get a band like rem who claims to be heavily influenced by patty smith and the velvet underground excellent sources for any musician and then they turn around and give you the lonely brilliant heartbreak ballad type jingle jangle in don't go back to rockville and then later in their career a stunning cover of wichita lineman if it snows that stretch down south and never stand and i need you more want you and i want you for all time we will continue to see the seeds planted by people like maybell carter and chet atkins and carl perkins these things are going to continue to be nurtured to grow to just flow through quality music 
forever, I hope. Uh, there's no escaping it. And not in the terrible zombie way, in the really good catchy melody in your head kind of way. So as the great Lynn Bramer used to say, it's great to be alive. And as our friend Warren Zevon used to say, enjoy every sandwich. We will see you next time, folks, when we return to those thrilling days of yesteryear. You know you still remember the Lone Ranger bit once you hear the first couple notes. You know that there's a bunch of Saturday morning cowboy music floating around in your head. If you can just kind of organize it and sort it together. Well, next episode, we are going to be revisiting all that stuff, whether it's Marty Robbins, the outlaw, whether it's the benevolent vigilante in the Lone Ranger or Zorro, whether it's, damn, how cool does Steve McQueen look in that hat or the brilliant soundtrack music of Elmer Bernstein. And of course, all of this stems from the great Gene Autry. I'm back in the saddle again. Out where a friend is a friend Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly Jimson weed Back in the saddle again We've got you covered. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Big locomotive right on time Big locomotive coming down the line Big locomotive number 99 Left the engineer with a worried mind That's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, that's a nice thought. That's a groovy button. What does it say? Save the Texas prairie chicken. That <laughs>